Best Book Bits podcast brings you Ramit Anand, teacher, educational mentor, founder of Elevate RA, a platform of empowerment for young girls to unleash their power, and the author of the book, Girl Elevated. Ramita, thanks for being on the show. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. No worries. Now, before we start the podcast, uh, I want to first share your vision uh, for the future. You write, my vision for the future is to be part of a society where all differences are celebrated, where girls can learn to be smart, confident women who lead with compassion and kindness and exemplify courage and strength. Uh, It's a really, really great vision you've got there. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, hearing it back actually like that is really quite inspirational for myself. Um, But no, that is really how I feel that we can and should be raising young girls um, for the future. I just feel that we can and there's been a lot of work that's being done to help empower young women. But I feel we're still not doing everything we possibly could. Yeah, absolutely. Now, your book's amazing. I, I have read it and, um, you know, having a young girl myself, not quite yet an adolescent, she's only nearly one, but uh, I can understand where, you, where you're coming from as well. Take us back to where it all started. Let's, uh, let's even fast forward back to your earliest sort of years on how you got onto this sort of um, particular field. Uh, take us back to your teenage years and how um, it sort of unfolded from there. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, um, it's without going into a whole long story about my entire life. Basically, the the last um, my my teenage years were filled with, or my childhood was filled with lots of lovely memories with family home and and all sorts of great things. I am an eldest of three, and sadly, we had the rug uh, pulled beneath our feet when our mum was diagnosed with cancer. So I was 13 when I lost my mum, who was my role model, my mentor, my best friend, really. And um, I think having teen years without her was tough. There's no doubt about it. I certainly did struggle with uh, the idea of not having her as my support network. Uh, So I think that's always been a thing. And I think I always wanted to go into medicine. I had a real love for science. I wanted to do what I could do to cure cancer so no other child was ever going to face what we went through and, and ever lose somebody that they loved like I did. Um, it never really transpired like that and I think life is an interesting thing. You can plan something all you like and then um, you know it may not happen as you think. So it didn't happen that way for me. I didn't get into med school uh, despite all my hard work and all my hard effort and trying to get all the grades uh, to get into med school. I never made it felt like a failure, didn't know what I was going to do. I went off and uh, had a year out where I was doing a bit of traveling and ended up back in India, spent some time with my grandparents. And it was in that trip that I realized actually what I want to do is work with kids in education. So came back to Vancouver, which is where I'm from, uh, trained to be a teacher. And whilst I was in my teaching training program, um, the Prime Minister of England was recruiting teachers from the Commonwealth because there were no teachers in London to teach in the schools due to all the issues around there. So I was recruited to teach in London and never really taught in Canada for a very, very long time, um, but was hit with a real kind of whoa um, when I got to London because it's a different place, a different education system. Um, and, and then I spent years being a teacher in London, loved it, loved it, loved it, um, but always felt, gosh, like the school system is a little bit broken here or is or, or are the children really, you know, having such a hard time um, because of X, Y, Z. Uh, and I kept drawing on these experiences. I went from uh, working in public sector to private sector. I've worked in single sex schools. I've worked in mixed ed schools. 
and all of it was all, all incredibly instrumental in my inform, in, in informing me on what I feel young people are missing. I think the education systems are great, but there are lots of things that we're not doing right for them. Yeah, and as we've spoken offline, we've um, got a bit in common. My wife's an expert teacher and actually taught in London as well, public schools, private schools, and obviously taught in Australia. You've taught in Canada and, and gone over to, to London. Yeah, um, great experiences yeah. from there. Um, talk a little bit about how then you got involved in the sort of um, the world of uh, teaching, you know, teenage girls and uh, in empowerment with that what was the shift on from teaching into female empowerment with with elevate where did that come from so you yeah you talk about the my vision and you read out my uh issue around different what my concern for children with differences and i think one of the things that i retrained to do in the last six years of my teaching career was to become a teacher of, of children with any additional needs and that was, again, uh, propelled by my personal experiences. Uh, I think it often does come down to your personal uh, passion and, and where you've learned to see some things from yourself and from a personal perspective as a mother. Um, my son was d- diagnosed with a neurodiverse condition. He was, he's got a few things, but one of them mainly is autism. And not having real experience of working with child, children with neurodiverse brains, I had no idea what I was doing as a mum if I, w- I was completely lost. And I thought, right, I've got a platform. I'm a teacher. I work with kids. There are lots of kids with learning difficulties out there. What can I do to help not just the children, but their families as well? So that's where it took me into working with kids that might have differences. Um, Of course, that then led into a whole different type of world of differences. It's not just learning difficulties. It's difference in body shape, difference in skin colors and difference in not fitting in. I mean, all sorts of things. And the more I looked at this, the more I realized how much my the girls I was working with were affected in terms of their self-confidence and then their low self-esteem and what it was doing to their academic careers and then their social relationships and then their relationships at home completely, uh, you know, magnifying everything because of the, their self-worth wasn't there. And yes, I learned lots of great techniques of how you can deliver the curriculum to children who learn ne- with neurodiverse brains and all of that made a big difference. But I think most, the thing that I reflected on the most was that it was the time and space that I gave them to be in my classroom to believe in them that I think made the biggest difference in, in their learning and their feeling like they could go back into their main classroom and deal with the the challenge at stake so I never think I know I don't think you can solve anything with one solution but I definitely felt that there was a void and one of the things that I think that the, you know the school systems do and I think it's it's important obviously but I think society as a whole plays into this is that we're constantly chasing something else and one of the greatest things I think people or parents should learn is that there's no trophy at the end of anything called life there just isn't your kids will get where they need to get to with the right support, love, care, attention. But if we lose them in those formative years of adolescence and we don't get them to feel good about themselves, I think we're in danger of never letting them ever fill their full potential um, because they'll always doubt themselves. And I think that's what really got me thinking about what is it that I can do to help young girls. And so I developed and started Elevate yeah, from that well, thinking well said yeah thanks for uh thanks for sharing the story on that um yeah let's let's jump into the book uh you don't mind if i just uh, read the introduction a little bit too um not at all yes yeah, so you're writing the book raising girls through an early adolescence involves excitement and angst in equal measure 
their newfound independence and the desire to express their unique identities are critical at this stage. The worry and confusion parents experience at what is unfolding, though, can result in despair and or desire to keep their precious girls little and protected for as long as possible. It's our roles to prepare girls for the life that awaits, but our help can feel unwelcome when they think they already know everything. You deep dive into sort of the five methodologies that bring that this, you talk about their superpowers and how girls have a superpower that we need to sort of uh, let them unleash. And you focus on the work that you can do and explore in depth. And we'll talk about a little bit more, which is confidence, uh, empathy, emotional intelligence, resilience, and kindness as well. Um, yeah, let's, let's kick off the book and you talk about sort of step one, setting the scene and, uh, why, why elevate. So, um, can you talk a little bit about the KWP knowledge, wonder, and power framework, if you don't mind? Not at all. So I thought long and hard about the five superpowers, and I really do believe that if we instill lots of confidence, we talk about empathy and we get children to learn about learning perspectives, get their emotional intelligence up. And I think there's a lot of research out there that talks about great leadership and wonderful uh, people in senior roles in lots of organizations uh, that do well in their roles because of their high EQ levels. And, and that is something that we are looking for, but we are looking for it when they're in adult ages and we don't give it to them when they're, we need to teach them that level. It's not easy just to get it on and off in its own. Um, and I think the, the idea around kindness and resilience is just part of life. The knocks that they, they're going to get is, is huge. Now, I think what happens a lot of times, especially when parents rock up to a teacher or a tutor or any kind of a te- you know person that's going to help their child, the immediate gut reaction for that child probably is to feel like I've been brought to you or my t- I'm getting extra help or I'm being pulled out of lessons to work with Mrs. Anand, as I was known in the schools, because there's something wrong with me. And I hated that. I hated starting any lesson with a child that felt already off the back that they weren't good enough to be where they were. And I think the K part is where I really want to start the program off with the girls uh, and their parents celebrating everything we already know about their child. And I think we don't spend enough time sometimes focusing about on the strengths of our children. We're very good and very quick at picking up the things that they might be lacking. And I don't know if um, it's a it's a human nature thing. I think, you know, uh, Einstein said this thing about, uh, you know, the fact that he could do a thousand sums correctly. And then the one that he has on, incorrectly on the board, which is nine times 10 is 91. That's the only thing anyone ever pointed out was that he got that one. He said, but I've done all sorts of other things in the room today. And the only thing people are noticing is the one error that I've made. And I think that happens so profoundly in adolescence where kids are constantly looking at what's wrong with them. So my idea is to start with positivity and let's let's really shine a light on everything that's amazing about your child, about you, and let the daughters get involved and the girls get involved in, in this exercise with me while their mum and dad are in the room as well. So we really, and, and also let the parents who often think they've told their children that they think they're wonderful at this, that X, Y, and Z, or that they think they're a wonderful sister, or they think they're a wonderful netball player but actually maybe don't voice it enough and the girls don't know this so when they share each of their strengths the k's um it's a real lovely moment of bonding between the the children and their parents so that's what the k is and the w stands for wonders 
and worries. So I kind of let the girls choose. They can talk about everything that they're worried about in their particular stage of life where they are. Are they worried about being liked? Are they worried? Some of them are worried about getting fat. Some of them are worried about um, their tests. Some of them are worried about the 11 plus. Some of them are worried about what they're going to do when they're 30. It's interesting to see what they're carrying in their minds. Um, and they list all their wonders and their worries out. And, and that is what I inform my pro the rest of my program and my time with the children with. So I spend the next sort of week or so looking at all the worries that the child has, to, has, has made clear to me about what they have. And then I ask the parents to do the same exercise and ex on a separate piece of paper. And I kind of sh ask each of them to share. So mum might or dad might share with, with their daughter saying, I worry about your safety. I worry that you uh, don't think highly enough of yourself. Or I worry that you're not getting enough sleep. Or whatever it may be and uh, I take both of those things and then I, I work in them into the exercises that I do over the next set of the weeks that I work with their girls without the parents and then I invite the parents at the end of the six weeks with the girls uh, back into the room and we unleash our power and I ask the girls to share what tools they've learned what strategies they've learned with me to try and address those worries that they listed at the start You, you talk about low self-esteem in, in the teen and, and, and tween uh, world between the ages of sort of uh, nine and 14. Um, talk to a little bit about sort of uh, low self-esteem and how as parents we should, you know, reassure our kids exactly what you said with their, with their superpowers and what they're good at. And sometimes we don't acknowledge the good, but we're so easy to pick up on the negative. Give us, uh, as parents, uh, what are some of the things we could do to sort of elevate our kids' uh, you know, low self-esteem into high self-esteem? Sure. I think there's a lot of things that we can put into place. I think one of the things that we forget as uh, they're growing up and they become a little bit moody and they might have slight negative attitude towards parents, particularly because they want to push them, their parents away, mostly because they are trying to form their own identities away from their parents. So it becomes a bit of a tricky time for parents. And I think some parents take the approach that, well, if I become super friendly and pally with my children, that will be a great way to bond with them. I go. I don't think that I think teens need boundaries and I think they need to understand that there are consequences for breaking any rules that you might set. So I do think that they thrive on having those clear boundaries. They have to be clear and they have to be set at a time where I think families are calm, happy and able to talk about things. And then I need parents to be able to give their children consequences that they're going to follow through on otherwise all of the exercises don't really make sense so I think being patient with your teen and your tween is incredibly important even though it's so hard I'm in that world right now I know I talk about it at work and then I have to practice it myself and I promise you hand on heart it takes a lot and I think parents also have to be kind on themselves because we are navigating a world that didn't exist before us so our default system as parents is often to do what our parents did with us or go the other way and say well I'm definitely not doing what my mum and dad did with me I'm go you know I'm absolutely going to parent in a different style but that was all pre social media and the digital age. And we've never had an example of what to do when children are struggling with mental health concerns and, and self-esteem concerns that have come out of, and there's no denying it, there's lots of positives about social media. I'm not here to, to ban or to 
dismiss the advantages that come with the world that we live in but there are lots and lots and lots of cases and so much evidence to suggest that particularly in those early teen years when the girls are developing their brains and the prefrontal cortex is still learning how to get it to its you know adult brain that we can impact some of the neuro wire neuro the neurotransmitters and the wiring around it for them to make some serious damage to the way they think about themselves yeah and in the in the book you 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 go deep on girls and social media and uh, understanding the science of dopamine addiction uh that can yeah. be difficult as well and how that relates into you know self-harm and suicide in girls begin to rise you, you talk about a stat that rates for girls age 15 to 18 were up 62 percent well you know 10 to 14 is 189 percent between you know that's that was 2010 and 2015 so i can only imagine what it is um now and, and that goes into my next question which is basically recently discussed global beauty standards can you talk about how the impact of social media you know dopamine addiction beauty standards in girls whose brains are still developing and don't understand that you know as as adults we can see we can clearly look down on kids and and say you know that might not be uh, correct but they live, live in their own not only world in their head but their peer group um and how real that is for them in terms of trying to, yeah, you know, global beauty standards are, are not correct. And how you talk about falling in love with your own skin and, and your own superpowers as well. Can you sort of talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I think girls or children at school in, in our generation, if there was a bad day, you'd come home and you could spend some time with your parents and or your tv or whatever it was and your books and go out for a bike ride or whatever you might be doing and you can and then start with a fair pair of fresh eyes the next day and perhaps the problem that felt so big the day before isn't so big at school the next day the trouble is with social media and giving children devices and having all the tech on all the time is that there's no break for that children don't ever switch off and therefore they are constantly compared online because they don't want the FOMO thing they don't want to miss out on what their peers are doing and you can remember that you don't want to not be connected to the world that everybody else is connected to so a lot of parents aren't around they're busy working um, of course in the pandemic was another big factor in this because they weren't seeing their kids uh, their friends in person so um, extra allowances on screens was given so that children could connect on gaming sites and and tiktoks and whatever else they use to 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 be social and i think that's what that's done is led to intense amount and probably way more than it's healthy amount of time scrolling mindlessly on social media and telling feeding our brain information at that impressionable age of what they think is the right thing to do and how to look and how to um be and i think the whole selfie culture and the idea of being uh on show all the time is partly what has created this terrible uh, cycle of events for these young girls so i think you're right um, it is down to the big organizations to think about who they're putting on to the covers of these magazines well it's not magazines now it's um it's it was for me it was magazines for these young girls it's who the, who are the stars on their social media squares who are the girls that they're looking at in their grids and how are we portraying beauty is that really what we want? Do we not want girls to feel that their self-worth comes from within, from their superpowers, from their ability to be a good friend, from their ability to be a fantastic thinker, a curious learner, instead of um, 
looking into a camera a certain way or having a certain pout or a certain body type. Yeah, and it, you know, I th- I think you know we didn't have filters back in those days as well, and I can damn sure tell you that the clothing industry wasn't as pr- provocative that it is now, and it's ridiculous that what some teenage girls dress up as it's um yeah it's it's way way too yeah. much, and I don't think it's good at all for not only parents but society as well. Um, that you know young girls have been so sexualized by you know clothing companies, makeup companies, and all the rest of stuff too. It's um it's a damn shame. One of the little tips you you talk about in the book is one of your top tips for parents is to set up a contract uh with your twins can you talk about setting up a contract like a social media contract or just an agreement um can you talk a little bit about that and some tips that parents can use to sort of um yeah instill that into their relationship with their children yeah i find this um a, a useful way of having clear understanding because what we can't do, and, and, and it's completely personal to each family, is dictate everybody's moral values. And one child who gets a device at age 10 may not be in a family that his, whose parents' rules follow that. So I think the idea of a contract is something that is decided and signed by both parties, i.e. the children and the parents. But it becomes a personal family contract where you're not looking at the what child XYZ down the road is doing or what your um, cousins are doing or even, you know, because it can be a real comparisonitis thing where the kids are really constantly saying, well, so-and-so does this and I want to be able to do this. And I think if you if you give children some agency and you, you do let them take part in that conversation and allow them the case of presenting everything that they think they should be having at this age and then telling you why and then earning those rights. So I think there should be time limits and there should be times in the, in the family where devices are off or um, if, for example, drinking is a big no-no for uh, parents in that fa- in one particular family and they want their children to be able to go to parties but they don't want them to pick up the alcohol how do you come to these conversations because if the child comes home drunk and you lose your mind in that moment it's not great for the child and it's not good for you and you haven't really achieved anything but if you preempt pre- like the whole idea around elevate is preventative education so if you talk before they get to these stages even though it feels ludicrous to talk to a 13 or 14 year old about alcohol i think actually setting those messages in and talking about what your moral compass is what your family's expectations are and i mean everybody in the family that is there caring for the child so if that's mum, dad stepdad whoever else is in that family dynamic should all be on a clear page and take the opportunity before you get to those moments where they say to you, mum, dad, there's a party this weekend or mum, dad, it's my 13th birthday. I want an iPhone 12 pro or whatever they might want to have, you know, instead of breaking their heart or, or then feeling guilt or shame as a parent saying, well, I, everyone else's kids has got this. And we did, if you pre- preventatively and proactively have these conversations before the child's 13th birthday or before the child gets to invit- invitations to a house party, then you're already at a clear place and you hopefully build this idea of trust with your child. And the child hears mom and dad care. Mom and dad want me to be safe and I want to be safe because no teen really wants to be in trouble either. Um, you know, they, they might act it in front of their friends and their peers, but genuinely they are also as frightened as everybody else about the world in front of them. And they are also learning all this kind of you know, new social norms. So they're also looking for some guidance. And I think they may never tell you that, 
But I think secretly, I know actually secretly that they take a lot of benefit from having somebody looking out for them and, and, and saying, I, I trust you. I want you to be at this event or I want you to go to this disco, but I want you to know that, that this, this is how we designed our contract. Here's your reminder. This is what we decided. And if you break this contract, here are the consequences. Yeah, yeah, well said. And uh, you, in the book, you talk about the importance of uh, mentorship and role models. We as parents mm. are their you know, role model. And it's not what you say, it's what you do. And they pick up on what you do more than what you say. So in terms of social media contracts, as adults, we should be showing them that, hey, it's okay to have uh, FOMO, fear of missing out, mm. meaning you can turn your device off, you don't have to upload, you know, you can be off, you can be off and you can tune out. And the importance of mm. sort of being with yourself without the social media device as well, especially as a family uh, too. Yeah, so thank you for sort of expanding and, and touching on that as well. Um, in the book as well, you also talk about redefining happiness. So talk about sort of the emotional states of how we can redefine some of those feelings of you know, being the kids grumpy, lazy, annoyed, irritated, self-absorbed and emotional and the importance of sort of changing that inner, that inner pattern of what you define as happiness is actually just a normal part of day to day growing up as well. So can you talk about the emotional side of sort of teenagers as well? Sure. I think um, it's tough. You know, I think nobody talks about the, the idea of grief for parents when their little girl becomes a, a preteen and then a teen and the little girl's also um, a bit confused and I think we forget how difficult this period is for both sides and I think those images of them playing in, in the swings or in the parks and in the swimming pools and just laughing and being a smiley little girls um, most of the time um, are the images that we hold on to and we stick with because we we created this amazing creature and we want to be with that lovely little girl for the rest of her lives and suddenly you get to one morning and you really don't know when it happens and they're just the grumpiest <laughs> most unhappy people and I think what our expectations of our girls is um to well I've just made you breakfast or I've just taken you to school or I spent all weekend running around taking you from xyz there's no appreciation and you're just miserable and you're being really rude and I think that can create a really un. Uh, acrimonious sort of environment in the house because the girls are getting to a place where they cannot think beyond themselves yet our parents as parents all we're doing is literally everything for our children so that kind of reminder and that understanding because it comes out of nowhere people may talk about it and, and say oh yes teen years are hard but actually the ins and outs of that aren't so great or clear um and Partly that's just because of the actual time mums and dads and carers and nannies don't spend with other mums of teen girls. The, the natural things around um, play groups, music groups, having those opportunities at school gates, because nobody takes a teen into school anymore and you don't hang out as a mum waiting. So you don't realise that you're all going through this. So this kind of having a, a network around you of, of, of other carers is also really important, I think. But... Um, it might, the idea that we want our teens to be happy because we've done so much for them is almost impossible. Um, and then expecting our teens, and I think there's a fine line here. It is important, obviously, to look out for signs if you think your child is genuinely so different to how they used to be that you worry that there's a medical issue around their um, health and their mental health and their anxiety levels are got, gotten so 
so severely out of their character, then I think seeking uh, professional help is obviously definitely warranted and, and having a word with their teachers and, and um, their pediatrician would be really advisable. Um, but I mean, in general, I think if they go from one minute being quite grumpy, the next minute to being really cheery and you can't work out what just caused that, um, just to have that patience that the hormonal levels of change in their body at the moment is so all over the place that they, they actually have no rational control over it because their brain is still being reconstructed. Yeah, and I think teaching uh, children as well, you talk about the power of sort of confidence and, and growth mindset in the book with, you know, the book on Carol Dweck and, um, you know, self-belief, helping girls shift the way that they think um, is about fostering a growth mindset. And with a growth mindset, you can basically show them that their, their inner voice could be a force of sort of championship. And if we teach our children to change the language in those built-in thought patterns, we can increase their confidence. Um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about confidence and how we, we should you know, teach our children about growth mindset? Because as you said, they're still developing, they're still growing, and they're not quite there yet. Yeah, and I think it's important not to be labelled. I think it's quite dangerous when you get put into an A team, B team, C team, or you get put into the top set, middle set, you know, bottom set of, of a subject. What happens, I think, quite quickly is that we start to internalise, well, I'm not good enough to be in the top set, or I'll never make the A team for football or hockey or whatever that is they're trying out for or a play or the choir whatever it might be there are a lot of extracurricular activities out there where you have to audition for or you have to um without even you know teachers pointing it out it's really obvious to the children where they might rank and i think the idea of ranking is really tough but what i like to kids and parents and teachers to do is to remind children that this is not forever this is not this doesn't define you it, what what your 11 plus results are is not going to form the adult that you become it's the attitude that you have towards learning towards failure to making mistakes towards any of the things that might give you knocks back it's the resilience that you're building every time you feel like you haven't got something right that's going to allow you to grow in confidence so giving them that ability that self-belief to get back up from the fall which is that one of the other superpowers is the resilience part of it and actually getting their neuroscience the neuroscience behind the kids right neuroplasticity is a really hugely proven science that our brain is malleable we can expand it we can absolutely grow it and let girls understand that just because today in this cohort in this tiny school in you know in this place in the world the world is huge there are lots of children out there and you are doing really well in lots of areas. And if you're not doing well in math today, it's not like you're not going to do math and in, 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 do well in math tomorrow. And I use math just because girls and math and science seem to be a real sticking point um, with lots and lots of families that I work with. But that that isn't, you know, that it could be anything. My point is, if we keep using the right language and say, I'm not good enough yet, or I, I won't, I haven't got my A yet. And we can remind them that with hard work, commitment, dedication, that you will get where you need to. You just need to be uh, very focused and determined and have a game plan. You know, let's let's plan this out. I'm not saying that just manifesting an A is going to make an A come or if you use the word I'm going to get an A tomorrow it may work but it might not be the only what I will tell you though is if you keep telling yourself that one day I'm going to get an A in this subject and you that message keeps coming in you are then going to be determined to want to work towards getting that A you might go for extra help at the end of the week and go and find your math tutor and say I didn't get that or you might ask for some extra revision papers and all of that extra practice that you put into it might result in an A sooner than later. 
Yeah, it's funny that you just said the word yet. I just interviewed a guy named Trevor Lynch who wrote the book, Yes, You Frickin' Can. And yeah, he talks massively about the the power of that three-letter word, which is yet. And we need to be comfortable with yet because even as kids, they're, they're not there yet. And as adults, we think mm-hmm. we've arrived at the yet, which is a fixed mindset. But no, 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 we're still growing ourselves. So I think teaching kids early on that just because, as you said, you're not good at math Yet, it doesn't mean that later on in life you can't go back to that and relearn that. I was terrible at English, and now look at me, I've, you know, I'm still terrible at English, but through practice and hard work, I'm still getting there. I'm not there yet, but I'm still growing through the English language. Uh, in the book, you talk about yeah. a, a really touching story about a guy named Ali who lost his son tragically, and he ended up writing the book Soul for Happy as well, and the power of neuroplasticity and the power of positive thought patterns. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so Ali is a lovely, is a young boy who who passed away um, very, very suddenly and tragically for a routine operation of an appendix. Um, and his father was the, it was Mo Gaudat, the man that I interviewed for my podcast. And he wrote the book, A Soul for Happy, and he's written lots of other books um, since as well. But in that book, he talks about uh, expectations versus uh, reality. And if we set the equations correctly with our children we can get happy but you have to think about what it is that you're expecting and if you constantly look for negative uh, expectations around and you constantly look for things to blame and you're constantly blaming yourself as the victim of an event then happiness and you, and you choose to sit in that suffering then that is going to be an unhappy life an unfulfilled life for you but you have a choice to look at a situation that didn't go your way Think about what the outcomes are and think about, well, it didn't go how I wanted to, but what did it teach me? And if you take that as a lesson, then you will be granted happiness. And he did that with the, you know, the whole process of losing his son and the grief that it brought him and how he's decided to use his, um, the rest of his life as a way to go ahead and teach other families and, and adults and people all around the world about how we can strive for happiness even when things don't go your way. I think we think that we will be happy when, I will be happy if, I will get happy if I get this X, Y, and Z. But actually, you, you won't. And nor will your teen. If your teen wants the next pair of Jordans and says, Mom, I'll be thrilled when I get that. Or, Dad, can you please buy me the next latest Xbox or you know gaming console? I'll be so happy. That's not the truth. They're not happy in that way. They have to be happy in is in themselves. And when we give children that message and we really teach them about things not always going to happening the way they need them to happen all the time because life just doesn't work like that, then we are going to set them up for what is true happiness and being content. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, it's something that we need to instill in our kids and let them understand that um, happiness is a choice. It's not it's it's really a conscious choice we we sort of waiting for happiness to come about unconsciously and through default which it never does it's literally a, it's a it's a choice uh moving on to empathy you talk about in the book empathy and how you know too many girls ignore the the importance of looking outwards to feel what other people are experiencing and feeling and they're sort of always stuck in their sort of frame of reference uh can you talk about empathy and and young girls on why it's so hard for them to you know show empathy and the power of being empathetic to other people as well yeah of course i think um you know part of it is is 
science and nature you because of where they are in their adolescent development it's very difficult for them to think beyond themselves I think that's true um so I'm not trying to diminish any of that but I do think that there are the whole culture around mean girls and why um there's even in females that are adults there's this kind of women pitting each other against each other and the competitiveness that that girls can create starts really young and my whole view around empathy is to broaden girls minds to think about everybody else and learn about perspective and I know we can do that when we travel I know we can do a little bit of perspective learning when we um you know try different foods or we go out and and explore different places but I think sometimes we all we have to do is look around the playground or the, the the netball court or the classroom to see why somebody else might not be feeling so great today is there something I can do possibly can I put myself in their shoes and understand what it might feel like to be the only person that doesn't have a partner or to be the only person that doesn't have a friend to sit with in the dining hall um and I think if we start and the other real mission I have with the empathy module in my uh lessons with the girls is teaching them how to be upstanders so it's one thing to to have those feelings themselves and to say, okay, yes, I do feel for that child. I think that child's having a hard time where their parents are going through a really messy divorce and this girl is not happy at the moment. It, you know, can I show her something? Can I can I do something to, to maybe alleviate some of the pain that she might be in? I don't think lots of girls have that a tool. Um, and I think the other thing is we don't, we can't stop the bullying unless we start teaching girls how to, how to be upstanders for each other. So how do we get girls to understand that if you see something that isn't right, how do you stand up for the other girl without getting yourself into a big mess? Because I I know girls love drama and I don't want to create a big scene, but I do want girls to understand that there there are ways in which you can show up for your friend or for this girl, even if she's not your friend, and create a sense of... um, solidarity with other girls uh, so that there is this wonderful sea of w- females that we raise that want to stand up for each other yeah and I, that's that's well said what you said and yeah just understanding that you know it's not just about them and, and it's the bigger world as well can get outside of their head and, and really help by being more empathetic to another person's plight and experience as well uh in the book you talk about active listening and sort of the the four types of listening which is appreciative listening empathetic listening comprehensive listening and critical listening as well and you also mention a great little quote by simon Sinek, which says hearing is listening to what he said listening is to hearing what isn't said as well can you talk about the power of sort of active listening not just from listening us parents listening to our kids but also kids um teaching them how to actively listen as well yeah and i think that's a a battle many parents probably have with teens but i think again like you said in earlier we are their scaffolding we are their role models so if we demonstrate good listening skills then hopefully they start to model that with their friends and that they model that with other people. Um, Active listening is great eye contact. It is dropping the phone. It is not trying to talk. And obviously with teens, it's slightly different because I do say that um, it's not easy talking to teens face to face. They don't really like that kind of interrogative chat. They actually like to be side to side. So if you're cooking and they're sort of standing next to you, I, I, I don't think that's 
inappropriate but I do think that if they come to you with a problem or they want to talk to you about their friendship issues or whatever they might be sharing with you that they mean you might be really busy and most parents are they're very busy but at that moment try and put everything away or say to them I really want to listen to what you're saying properly but I need to finish this email or I need to finish this phone call or I need to finish putting the dinner on and then can we just talk in 10 minutes and I think and then really showing them that you want to listen is important and I think um, not having any judgment so when they do share something with you even your body language, you know, even your eyes, even the way you might be looking or alarmed when they share something about their friends, you know, just have done this X, Y, and Z. And you're like, no, they haven't really. Um, and you think you, you're not, you know, showing those on emotions on your face, but you are. And they pick up on that like that and they will shut down. So I think active listening is genuinely taking in everything that your child has said to you and letting it sit, let them talk without you giving any judgment and possibly not even giving any advice um, unless they ask for it. And then that's the hardest part because I think what we all want to do is make everything better for our lovely little tween and teen. And we want to say, well, I think the best thing for you right now is X, you know, this, 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 and you should definitely go to school tomorrow and do this. And actually that is the other thing that will shut them right off from you. So um, just listen and just be active, be present, be in, be really, really reassuring and, and then really show your appreciation for them sharing what they did so that they keep coming back to you. And hopefully they'll do that with their friends as well. Yeah, parenting's an effort. It's a daily effort that requires, you know, new thinking, new skills, new challenges, new tactics. You know, <laughs> for me as a, as, a, as a parent, I've got a three-year-old boy and a one-year-old girl, and here I am talking to you already about sort of adolescence and what am I going to do when she's grown up. But um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a daily sort of less, it's a daily grind for parents to be on their A-game with parenting and also those new tactics and giving space to your child when, when you said active listening. Um, yeah, no need to respond back with what you think. Just give them the space to talk and, and be that person that you listen instead of you listening to respond. You you listen um, just, just for the sake of listening as well and getting that off their chest. Segway into the next important thing. You talk about the power of sort of the importance of journaling and mindfulness. Now, I'm a massive journal person myself and one of the things I loved in the book, you talked about encouraging uh, greater self-reflection and improving emotional intelligence. And one of the tips you write was, or one of the stories, one of the girls had problems sleeping and one of the things was to journal before going to bed just dumps the mind of all the shit of the day onto paper mm. and get a better night's sleep and mm. you feel um, less stressed and relaxed as well, which I do that, you know, daily or every second day. Can you talk about the, empower, um, the importance of sort of journaling, mindfulness and how that helps with sort of um, greater emotional intelligence as well? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that particular story that you talk about, I think you're absolutely right. That little girl was struggled with sleeping because her mind was just racing with so much anxiety around what had happened and what is to come the next day. And she just couldn't get her, her mind to rest and get into a place of getting good night's rest. And that worked beautifully for her because she was able to dump her worries out and they were parked and they didn't go away because you can't really make them all go away. But I think even the, when you've taken them out of your head and you've put them onto paper that physical act 
already alleviates how much you're holding. So giving that brain, your brain that rest by writing it out, drawing it out. I don't, you don't have to, you know, not lots of girls don't like to write, but they might like to draw. So even doodling the worries out and putting out what they've done in order to express themselves in a better way. No one has to read it. It has to be, you know, we, I always tell my parents, make sure that you make the girls understand that it's, it's not something that anyone else has to read. It's, it can be a very, very personalized and confidential thing for the girls if that makes them feel better about it. But giving them the time to do that is really important because, um, and, and you'll know this, Michael, as your kids get older, because you start to lose your evenings. And often what we want to do is like get on with our own as adults. And when they're little, they go to bed and then you and your partner, hopefully get some time to crash on the sofa with Netflix. But what happens as they get older is they don't go to bed. And so what we want to do as soon as their homework is done we want them to go to sleep um but i do think five to ten minutes where they get to journal and they unwind and the devices are off and you're in a kind of a, a dim lighting in your room and you teach them the power of sort of just breathing through their day talk about the things that were great because it's always important to shine a really good light on anything that happened in the day that was also really great and remembering that we did have some positives today yes there's a really big worry and I've got a really great big test tomorrow and I'm really scared I'm going to sleep in and not make my bus and get not get my coach and I'm not I'm going to miss this test I'm going to fail all the things that creep into their little brains um is part of it but it's really important to teach them the skill of looking at the positives and then also channeling some of their anxiety their worries anything that is uh keeping them up at night into writing is another really great tactic yeah absolutely it's so powerful of just emptying the mind even like you talk about resilience and facing hardships and you know those bad days that we all go through you know they do end so the only hardest day was yesterday uh, that's the model of the yeah. U.S. Army, but um, really, really good one because you know yesterday can't hurt you if it, if it's if it's gone. You wake up a new day, it's fresh. Yeah, clean your mind just like you would shower or brush your teeth. You need to just empty what's going on through there. So in the book, yeah, you talk about resilience, uh, teaching your kids how to cultivate resilience as well. Do you want to touch on some tips or exercises uh, as parents that we can teach our uh, young girls and boys um, how to cultivate resilience in life? Yeah, you bring up a good point. A lot of these things work for both girls and boys, but I think I focused a lot of my research on what was happening with teen girls and tween girls. Um, so the book does work across. So if anyone listening to this has uh, boys, I think there are tips in there that would work for them as well. Um, for me, the idea around resilience, and, I, and again, I think the idea that we because we love our children and, and that's you know, no parent will say that they don't. We never want to see them hurting. It's very difficult. And our instinctive reaction to most things in life is to protect our child and do as much as we can for them. And that works really beautifully when they're little, you know, you give them. Um, but actually, I think there is advantages even in, in letting them go when you have to let that your hand off the bike and you have to let the training wheels go and you let you watch them cycle off in, in, with the two wheeler bike. And that's a really big moment for all parents. I think um, teen and tween years are going to be filled with lots of mistakes that your, your kids make. But allowing them those opportunities to make those mistakes is hugely important. And I think if we don't do that and give them space to fail, and I hate the word fail, so I'm not going to use the word fail, but to not get it right the first time is a massively important step in getting children to be resilient. So if we let them fall, great. 
I think that's wonderful. But the, where are we come in, where I think the parents' role really is, is to teach them the, how we get up. And if we can do that as parents, we will really do our job to raise leaders and people in the world and kids that grow up to be adults that can face challenge without falling apart. Yeah, well said. I mean, there's so many, um, there's so many more great things that you write in the book as well, and we we can touch on. I'm, I'm sure we've sort of run over time as well. But one of the things that we should teach our kids as well is is the is the power of sort of diet, physical exercise, and sleep, and how that three as a triangle will improve your mental health, your physical health, you know, your emotional health as well. And you know, if we don't teach our kids to eat well, sleep well, you know, or do any exercise, they they're going to their mental health is going to suffer, which then they're outwardly going to express that as well. So can you talk about the the power of us as parents on, I mean, I know they bounce back quick and kids can sort of go with shit food, shit sleep and um, no exercise and still feel good. But talk about how we should encourage, you know, a healthy diet, getting the exercise and just get into good habits of, of sleep as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously I have, I think all kids should be kids and they should enjoy whatever kind of food that they're enjoying on occasion I don't have any strict rules around diet in that way particularly around girls and body confidence I do like to encourage girls to feel good with what they eat and um, that is definitely part of it but what are those foods what makes you feel good and I think if we don't give our children the feel-good foods and the sleep and then the right amount of screen time to, to, to affect their mental health then we then their ability to deal with challenge we've already set them at a disadvantage. So when something is going wrong, because they're not at their fittest and their strongest, then they, their reaction to challenge will be less than their best. And if we, do, if we don't give our children the best chance at fighting those days where things are going badly, then we are setting them up for a terrible catastrophe as they become adults, really, because then that is when tantrums, and you've seen adults have tantrums when things don't go their way. Um, and we don't want that for our children. We really want them to be able to take situations that are in front of them and put a calm, cool head and make sure that they deal with it in the right way. Of course, kids are going to lash out and of course parents have to do that too. But again, if we model that as a healthy family you know what makes us feel good does sleep makes us feel a bit you know being sleep deprived and I will say this really openly with my children I didn't sleep well last night I feel a little grumpy excuse me if I was short with you this morning you know it's important for us to model that so a few weeks later when my daughter had a bad night's sleep and she was extremely rude to um her grandma the next day and when they were visiting she had the language and the, the know-how to say, I'm really sorry that came out like that. I didn't sleep well, well last night, you know? And I think that can only come when we share the same vulnerability with them. So I think those are important things. And I think if we continue to remind ourselves that being healthy and strong, and uh, yes, we do that for physical reasons and we do that for a, a way of living a long, a long and beautiful life, but education is the same way. You know, if we educate our, our body to, to think about the right foods and think about how rest can make a big difference, how having breaks can make a big difference, then we are also setting our brain up for a healthy long life. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And as you said, Viola, like how you said, I didn't have enough sleep and I felt a bit grumpy. Uh, my wife's like that every day, and, and sometimes myself. <laughs> but yeah, teaching teaching children the language pattern as adults and say, you know what, I I lashed out. My my emotional response was that because of X, Y, and C, they can use that language yeah. pattern as well. Just the last topic uh, before we wrap up, I want to talk about sort of celebrating differences as parents or just as anyone. We all want to fit in. We all want to be the same. We all want to look cool, this and that. But at the end of the day, what makes us unique and great are our differences. Uh, can you talk about sort of the power of celebrating differences, um, which which includes, you know, diversity, quality and inclusion matters, but just with celebrating differences in our kids as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think the fact that there is nobody else that has the same unique DNA pattern as you makes you special, right? There is no, be you because there's nobody better. Um, I think if we give these messages to children and ask them to think about why their unique characteristics make that day extra special because they bring this to you, um, reminding them that they matter because of their difference, not in spite of their difference. You know, all of that kind of language around I think like this or I uh, watched a show where one of the, the girls who had dyslexia was put in the, a special classroom for spelling help. And, but she had the most incredible superpowers in terms of her strengths in, in creatively visualizing things. So she could see things and draw 3D models in a way that nobody else in the class could. And I think really, really honing in on everything you can do, not what you can't do, but also realizing that that difference that you you can't spell maybe as quickly as everybody else because of your spelling deficiencies or whatever the way your brain is working, that doesn't make you less than. That makes you extra special. And how do we celebrate that? Because that because of the wiring of your brain, you can do this. So let's look at that and let's really celebrate you for that. Um, and I think really teaching children to, to compliment other girls, you know, share that kindness, put that into the world because it's a ripple effect of what we can create if we keep continuing the language around, hey, I just noticed that amazing, cool hairdo you've done, um, you know, and not doing the exact same hair as everybody else will make you pretty special. Yeah. And, adult, and as adults, we understand that what makes us different and unique and then applying the you know time energy on those on our personal superpowers is what makes us great mm-hmm. in our careers, our personal lives, professional lives, and yeah, what makes us uh, our unique DNA because no one else is like that as well. To wrap up the the podcast, thank you so much for writing the book. Where can people find out more about yourself, your book, and the platform Elevate as well? And let's say someone listening right now is like, how do I get in touch with you? Or how can I deep dive into what you do? Can you talk about sort of what you do professionally and how you can help uh, parents and, and kids and uh, teens out there as well? Oh, thank you. Yeah. So the website is elevate. So www.elevate-ra.com. Uh, you can buy the book on Amazon across the world. So .com.ca, .sg, wherever you might be. Um, it's also available on Waterstones and the Book Depository. If you wanted to get it off my website, you can also do that. Um, and my socials is at elevate.ra and I'm Ramita Anand on LinkedIn. You can pretty much find me anywhere there. And if you are interested in running the mentorship program with me, I run it online. So if you are based uh, 
in Australia, some of your listeners might be, um, but I know you've got a global audience. But so wherever you are, I work with children around the globe, which is one of the most beautiful things about what I get to do. Um, and I make the time differences and things work, but it's it's online if you want it to be. But if you're based in London and you'd like to do it in person, I also work from home and run workshops for children and parents uh, at home. Beautiful. Uh, thank you for, yeah, thank you for writing this book and, you know, your life experience as well and sharing the stories as well. So, uh, Ramita, thank you very much for being a guest on the Best Book Bids podcast. And to my audience out there, go follow her socially, check out her book. And, uh, yeah, if you're interested in the mentorship program, check that out as well. So thank you very much for being a guest. Um, have a great day and I'll speak to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Michael, for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. No worries at all. All right.